This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. I started off the day very well by calling you dirt, and um, I meant that in a nice way, but I don't mean it as an insult. If you're familiar with the creation story, you're familiar with the fact that we are made from dirt, correct? So God knelt in the dirt and he formed uh, man. So we are dirt and I think that gives us um, a profound connection and an affinity with the rest of natural creation. We cannot separate ourselves out from creation We cannot separate ourselves out from the creator, and we are a people, so we are designed to live in this three-part harmony between us, our creator, and the rest of natural creation. Now, we can walk in disobedience, and we can make decisions and behave in ways that will separate us from a life inside the heart of God, that room that Jesus talked about going to prepare, that every one of us has our own individual room in the heart of the Father, that that was his purpose. He was going to prepare that for us. The room is there. Whether or not we decide to live in a way that will ensure that we're able to occupy that room is up to us. But the room is there. He looked at people, and those people, although we were not even born yet, included us, and said, I go to prepare a room for you. And the room is in the heart of the Father, and we don't have to wait till we get to heaven to move into our room. I'm thrilled to testify today that I'm living in my room. And I hope you're living in your room because it's really a cool place to live. There's lots of things about living in that room that... I would not trade for anything. and um, But we are made from dirt, and we do have to deal with life, and we do have to deal with the rest of natural creation and everything that's going on with that. Not everybody aligns with this opinion, and I might not be able to win a case in a court of law on it. But global warming being what it is and the climate and environment doing what it's doing... Uh, as far as natural patterns based on carbon emissions and all that kind of stuff, I believe that the world is under judgment because we've chosen to live outside of harmony with the God, rest, with God and the rest of natural creation. And so we have one disaster following the next one, following the next one, and it's because things are out of harmony. They're out of whack, and you can put whatever label, whatever name, whatever title you want to put on that, As long as we, as mankind in general worldwide, choose to live in patterns of disobedience, things are not going to go well. And they're not going to get better, they're only going to get worse. But there is a big difference between dirt and dirty. So I also mentioned early on that a word for the day could be sin. That's where we get into the dirty. So I think we would all agree that For some purposes, dirt is a good thing. If you're going to pot flowers, dirt is a good thing. If you're going to garden, dirt is a good thing. 
Um, there are lots of things that we could name or point to to say if we did not have dirt, we'd be in trouble or we would not be able to accomplish that. So there's nothing wrong with dirt. When you say dirt, that doesn't equate to sin. Because if that was so, then we would all be made of sin and there really wouldn't be anything that could be done about that. But what we do in life is we start to dirty up things with a spiritual kind of a dirt and not spiritual in a good way. And we start to grime up our lives through patterns of disobedience. So sin is here. It's been here since the garden. It's been here since God's first children decided to disobey the one and only rule that he had given them. And when it entered the world, it entered in a perpetual fashion. Sin is perpetual, and by that I mean that it is always present, and it's always developing, and it's always doing something. It's always having an impact. It's, it's moving, and it's active, and it's impacting the lives of people all the time. So in other words, sin is not an act that you commit, and then it's done, and whatever damage there is that's a result of that sin just falls in front of you, and that's the end of it. No, that's not the nature of sin. So if my great-grandfather committed adultery against his wife, the result of that is going to move and continue to infiltrate the family. It's going to continue to have an impact. It's going to continue to run down through the generations and to negatively affect that family because that's what sin does. You say, well, Jeff, is it not possible to ever fully overcome and to gain victory over it? Yes, it is. But generally speaking, sin is perpetual and is always moving around. Once, once that act, once that decision has been made and the act has been done, then we have introduced a cycle of sin into the world. That's what happened from the garden. So sin is here, and sin is perpetual. Sin is moving. Sin is spreading. And so what are we going to do with all of that? How are we going to handle the, the reality that sin is among us? Well, I think that I've been guilty of, and maybe some of you have been guilty of, looking around the world and identifying pockets of sin and being very uh, intentional in pointing out that sin, and being very critical of the people that are doing the sinning and the sinning that they're doing. And I think that's dangerous, and I don't think that's the way we're supposed to approach it. Why is that? Because right now we're sitting in church on a Sunday morning. We've just had a worship time. We've had prayer time. We've had fellowship time. That, all of that's really good. But let me, let me give you the reality now, okay? Sin is in this room, okay? Sin is in this room. 
Now, I can drive down to Lincoln Park after church, and I can watch a drug deal happen on the corner. And I can be very critical of that, and I can point that out, and I can talk about that, and I can explain how horrible and how detrimental to society and to our young people that is. But I do so ignoring what's going on in this room. That's dangerous. I work in an area of Atlanta called the Bluff. It's amazing how many people, not just in Atlanta or Georgia or the Southeast, who know about the Bluff. Why? Because it is a really, really bad neighborhood. We're number one, our zip code's number one in the state of Georgia for all the reasons you don't want to be number one. We don't stand on the corner with a big number one foam finger going, we're number one, because it's not really number ones you're, you're proud of. We're number one for our homeless population. We're number one for violent crimes. We're number one for the number of people who are incarcerated in Georgia's jails and prisons from our zip code. We're number one for high school dropouts. We're number one for single-parent households. We're number one for all the wrong reasons. Okay, so we could get caught up in pointing at and talking about and criticizing all the sin that's happening in the bluff. Drug use, drug dealing, prostitution, crime, violence, homelessness, etc., etc., etc. Although homelessness is not really a sin. I don't know why I threw that in there. But ignore the sin that's going on in me. And ignore the sin that's going on in church. And ignore the sin that's going on in the wealthy communities. Ignore the, see, see, we could go to Lincoln Park, and then we could drive over to where the doctors live, over by the hospital. And you know what? The sin in, in that neighborhood where the doctors live is just as bad, just as egregious, grieves the heart of God just as much as the sin going on in Lincoln Park. And I think there's a level of spiritual arrogance that's going on when we decide to target certain communities, certain people, certain races, certain socioeconomic categories, and say, look at all the junk that's going on over there. Look at all the sin that's happening over there. Look how bad those people are. You know what? There are no people who are more bad than any other people. May I say that again? There are no people who are more bad than any other people, nor are there any people who are more good than any other people. When you talk about people who are made of dirt and into their nostrils is breathed the breath of God and they become living human beings, we are all equally good. And we all have potential to become equally bad. So, it's about... Well, let me ask you this question just to reemphasize the point a little bit. Is the crack addict who's living under a bridge in Atlanta or the heroin addict who's breaking into cars to steal stuff to support the habit or the meth addict who is behaving ridiculously and who's in and out of jail, 
any worse than the millionaire doctor's wife who's addicted to high-dollar whiskey. Which one's worse? Tracy and I went to a fundraising event in Atlanta on Thursday night at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, only 2,000 people on the floor of the stadium. Ritzy, bunch of millionaires in the room. We were there because the City of Refuge is a beneficiary of the money that was raised. We ate the best food you can get a hold of, and they had entertainment there, and they had wine on every table, and they had open bar with cocktails and beer and wine. And I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed at people I know who before the program even started were sloppy drunk, red-faced drunk. Okay, I could have gone over into the bluff and sat on the corner and witnessed prostitution and drug dealing going on and not have felt any worse than I felt with some of the things I witnessed at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium on Thursday night. If you want to contrast the spirit of the kingdom, the spirit of the way with the spirit of the world... Just go hang out in some of those environments sometimes as well as maybe going and hanging out in the ghetto <laughs> because you can see it in both places. You can see it in both places. Put up John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Probably the best story in the whole Bible to illustrate what we're talking about. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple. So where is Jesus now? He's at church, okay? He's not in the bluff. He's not out in the marketplace. He's at church. He came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat them down and taught them. Well, guess what happens in church? The holy people, the church members, come to him, and they bring a woman with them, and they throw her down on the floor, and they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So we're in church and teaching the scriptures, doing what we do in church. It's a house of worship. It's a house of the word. It's a house where the presence of God dwells. And they bring in a sinner from the street, somebody who's out there 
outside of church, who's not living by the principles of church, so to speak, and she's caught in the act of adultery, and she's brought in. And as a test, they say to the master, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now Moses' law says that she's to be stoned to death. What do you say? And while they're talking, Jesus is down writing and playing in the dirt. You see, there's nothing wrong with the dirt. He's, he's doing what his father did way back in Genesis. He's just down doing something in the dirt. And so he looks at them finally once they press in on him, and he says, listen, okay, I don't, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't try to argue a case for her. He doesn't try to defend her actions. He doesn't say, well, he doesn't give her any excuses. He says, okay, that's fine. We'll let the person in the room who has no sin in your life throw the first stone. We'll let you take the first step. And nobody in the room can do it. Nobody in the room can do it. Powerful lesson of grace. Powerful lesson of equality. Powerful lesson of not passing judgment on other human beings. I have to tell you today that judgment is a God job, and we're going to get in really messy territory when we start trying to do God's job for him. And I get asked all the time, well, what about this person? What about their behaviors? What about their doing? What they're doing? And my answer to that is, I'm not going to judge that. We will do what we can do to help them. We will do what we can do to provide better opportunities for them. But it is not my job to judge it. If I made my tour around town, like I mentioned before, and rode through every neighborhood in town, it would not be my job to point out people, to point out things, to point out activities, and to pass judgment on that, because God himself says that judgment belongs to him. Okay? So... I don't think anybody in this room is hitting the crack pipe these days. I hope not. I hope that no one in this room is shooting up heroin. I hope we don't have any robbers or thieves in the room. I hope there are no rapists here right now. I pray that there's nobody in the... I, I, I'm sorry, it, it was an accident. I didn't mean to really look at you. She reacted visibly when I looked over there her way. If I look at you, it, it doesn't mean anything, I promise. I'm not judging you. So you get the point. I don't think there's anybody in this room that are committing these really vile acts of sin that you might find if you go out here and you ride the neighborhoods, some of the bad neighborhoods. Uh, just about the only television show that I kind of enjoy watching that's current right now is Forensic Files. And, and you, because I have like this uh, investigative brain, if I hadn't gone into the career path I did go in, I think I would have been a good investigator. You know, and so I, I dig all of that, but you hear about and you see and you get the details of all these really horrible crimes, you know? And so it's easy to point and to say, that fool, that idiot, that terrible person, 
Look what they're doing. Look what they did. Look at the damage they're doing to their children. Look at the damage they're doing to their neighborhood. Look at the hurt and the grief they're causing to other people. Well, guess what? Sometimes I judge people, which is a direct act of disobedience to a command that God has given to me. So how can I stand here and point a finger at someone else when I have a sin in my own heart? I'm only using me as an example because I want y'all to come back next week. You know. You know. You know about the things that we don't emphasize very much in the Scripture like gossip. Okay? I'm not robbing any banks. I'm not shooting anybody. I'm not dealing any drugs. But is gossip not on the list of sins? Resentment, backbiting, murmuring, all those kind of fall into a same category under the same umbrella. Am I guilty of any of that? Are you guilty of any of that? The sins of commission that I'm talking about, where we do something that stands in direct opposition to what God has told us to do or not to do. And the sins of omission, which is things that we are instructed we must do as sons and daughters in the kingdom way that we don't do. What are those things? Well, Jesus kind of qualified it in pretty plain terms when he said that at the judgment, every human being is going to be judged and separated out into two categories. Well, what are those categories, Lord? What do you mean? What is it we're supposed to be doing? Well, you have to be a church member. No. You have to go at least twice a month anyway. No. Well, you have to wear the label Christian. No. Well, you have to say an 11-word sinner's prayer. No. He didn't say that. Well, Well, you have to... Read your Bible every morning and you have to pray every day. No, he didn't say that. Those things are important. I'm not downplaying their importance. But when they asked Jesus to qualify who's going to go in the category of goat and who's going to go in the category of sheep, he said it's going to be qualified by this. Do you love God and do you love people? Do you, will you, have you fed the hungry? Do you see your neighbor and his or her needs the same way you see yourself and your needs? 
Do you see the man going down the sidewalk with his shoes flapping because the soles have come loose and his socks are filthy and he has blisters and you have 40 pair of shoes in your closet, the same size that he wears, and you ignore his need. This is a qualifier. Do you provide people with shelter, clothing, food, water, transportation, friendship, visitation? Do you have compassion in your heart that leads to benevolent action toward the poor? These are qualifiers. If you don't believe what I'm saying, read it. 25th chapter of Matthew. Okay? It's an Old Testament thing and it's a New Testament thing. You can find it in Isaiah 58. You can find it in Deuteronomy. You can find it in Matthew 25. You can find it in Micah 3.6. You can find it all over the place. And it goes from the beginning of the Scripture to the end where in the last chapter, the last of the last book of the Bible, the 22nd chapter of Revelation, we're told that every human being will be judged based on what they have done. Done as it relates to what? Done as it relates to what he told us to do. Of course. So what am I going to do with my sin? I think that a stand to do a much better job and have a much greater influence and impact in the lives of other people who are dealing with serious sin, if I will just make a decision to deal with my own sin first. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. So what do we do? Do we keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is, that is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. And the reason I wanted us to visit this scripture for a minute is because this scripture is often used to teach people that once you have experienced salvation and baptism, that then you should be living a life that is free from sin. And Lord knows, y'all, I would love to, I would, I'd be the first one in line. If there was an opportunity to live a sin-free life, I'd be all about it. Okay, this is about intention. This is about focus. This is about decision making. It's not that we just say, well, sin's always there. It's, I, I, you know, I didn't instruct us that sin is perpetual as a way of saying we might as well just let it happen because it's going to happen anyway. No, that's not the point. Sin is perpetual. Sin's always in front of us. We're always having to deal with it. Right, but, it, but we don't decide, hey, I'm just going to keep on sinning because I know God's grace is there to cover it. 
No, we grow up, we mature, we advance, we sin less than we used to. And when it happens, we deal with it the right way. We deal with it the biblical way. We don't accept the guilt and condemnation that the enemy wants to bring behind it. Because the guilt and condemnation can be just as destructive as the sin itself was. We don't keep on sinning so that God's grace can abound, so that God can keep on forgiving We press into His heart. We walk in obedience to His words. We leave the transformation to Him. Listen, this is a very powerful principle that we're not in charge of cleaning ourselves up. We're not in charge of washing off the dirt. We're not in charge of transformation. We're in charge of obedience. You see, obedience is the one thing we have the power to make the decision on. I can't save you. You can't save yourself. I can't change your eternal destiny, nor can you change it for yourself. I cannot do profound spiritual works inside of you on a spiritual level. I can't do it. Neither can you do it for yourself. But what we do is we pay really, really careful attention to what it is that He's telling us to do, and we just do it, and we leave the results up to Him because transformation happens from the inside out, and that's a God work. I see it like this. The more of Him we put in, the more of the world has to be put out. It's forced out because there's not room in here for him and the world. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world. Both of them cannot live inside of me. So if I'm constantly pumping the kingdom of God into me, constantly chewing on his words, constantly ingesting his truth, constantly doing what he's telling me, then he, little by little, is going to chip away all the stuff of this world that's inside of me. And it has to go. And more and more I'm filled up with who he is is that's the way it works that's the way it works and so this business of stopping my sinning oh I can try all day long I can keep on trying and just keep falling on my face those of you who were here last week heard just a little bit of my testimony about growing up and trying to meet the standard that was placed in front of me And the standard really was, you cannot commit a sin or you are on your way to hell. And you have to get saved all over again. I could not meet that standard. And believe me, I tried. With everything that was in me, I tried. I tried to stop using words that were profane. I tried to stop having thoughts that were just plain wrong and bad and evil. I tried to stop caving in and participating in the activities that my friends were involved in when we were together. I really tried. I just couldn't do it. Why couldn't I do it? Because it ain't about trying. It's not about me striving. It's not about me working hard to really get it right. You know, I do a lot of mission work in Jamaica, and, 
uh, one of the most common things I hear, I see somebody on the side of the road, I'm like, hey, you need to come down and see us tonight. We're going to be doing a worship thing down here at church. Well, as soon as I can get off the rum, I'm going to start going to church. As soon as I can lay down the ganja, I'm going to start going to church. I'm like, listen, I want you in church reeking of ganja and rum please. There's nothing I would like more than a house full of people who smell like rum and ganja. I'm serious. Now that don't mean I want y'all to go get blown up and come in here next week. (laughs) But if you did, I'd hug your neck and say, boy, I'm glad you're here because I don't know of any better place you could be. And then we get you here and you know what we do? Ain't nobody in here going to point a finger at you and judge you and start gossiping around. You want a real quick invitation to hit the doors? Start standing around in the corners gossiping and wearing people out with your tongue and casting judgment on people. It's just not going to happen. I don't care if we end up with three of us. It's just not going to happen. We throw our arms around you and love you and take care of you, and be your family if that's what you need or want. And meet your needs, practical, spiritual, as much as God empowers us to do it. All the while, you can keep on smoking and drinking and doing whatever you're doing, but I know what's happening. We're investing in you. We're loving on you. It's what I labeled up in the city years ago, biscuit evangelism, where you're willing to sit down at the table with people who are poor and people who are destitute and people who stink and people who are using drugs and people who are doing all sorts of godless things. But you're willing to sit down at the table with them And say, I care enough about you to spend some time with you. I care enough about you to have a conversation with you. I care enough about you to feed you a hot meal. I care enough about you to give you a ride even though you may mess up my car seat. It's actually happened more than once. I care enough about you to pull out one of my 40 pair of shoes and make sure you've got a good pair to walk these sidewalks with. And we build trusting relationships, and then little by little, the Father starts chipping away all that stuff that needs to go because that's not my job. 1 John chapter 2. I write this, dear children, to guide you out of sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a priest friend in the presence of the Father. Jesus Christ, righteous Jesus. When he served as a sacrifice for our sins, he solved the sin problem for good. Not only ours, but the whole world's. When I opened up the service, I said, you know, it feels good to have somewhere to go. It feels good to have somebody to go to. Somebody that I know will listen. Somebody I know will understand. Somebody I know can do a work that I can't do and nobody else I know can do it except him. We have a friend, an advocate. This version calls him a priest friend. And he's right in the presence of God. Listen, 
Where do we want to get to? We want to get into the heart of God. Well, that's where he is. That's where he lives. Right with God the Father. And he is our priest friend. And we have him. So that if we do sin, we have somewhere we can go. Because he's already solved the sin problem. So sin is everywhere. Sin is evident. Sin is causing a lot of damage. Sin is perpetual. And sin is happening in some of our lives as much as it's happening anywhere else. But here's the good news for us, and here's the good news for the whole world. We have somewhere we can go. We have somebody we can talk to. And I'm talking about every time we need to go there. He's there. Because it doesn't matter how long you've been a believer, there will likely come a time again when you're going to fall into sin. It may not be theft. It may not be adultery. It may not be murder. But it may be a critical spirit. But it may be a judgmental spirit. But it may be a gossiping spirit. But it may be bitterness, but it may be lots of things that we like to kind of ignore and sweep under the rug in the scriptures. And we want to deal with the egregious sins. We want to deal with what's in the Ten Commandments. And we don't really want to deal with the words of Jesus when he said, if you're going to be my disciples, here's what you have to do. And if you do this, it will transform you from the inside out. And you will develop more and more every day into my image. You will become more and more victorious. More and more mature. Just listen to my words and obey. So I said that sin is perpetual. Well, there's part B to that. That is the good news. Salvation is also perpetual. Are you hearing me? So I grew up, this is, this is like from my testimony last week where I just took everything that I knew and believed about God and the Scripture and just threw it out on the table after I'd walked away from Him for about seven or eight years because I could not meet the standard. And then I started easing back and praying and listening and digging into the Scripture and just started taking everything I believed and just examining it one item at a time. And the first item was salvation. What do I know about it? What do I believe about it? Why do I know that? Why do I believe that? Where did I get it from? Where did I get my understanding from? And the answer, as the answer was to almost every other issue, was I got it from preachers and Sunday school teachers and youth camp counselors. In other words, I got everything I believed pretty much from somebody else, from another human being. So I said, well, let me dig into the Word because everything is supposed to be tested by the Spirit and the Word, right? Let me dig into the Word and see what the Word says about salvation. Does the Word align with what I have believed? 
And after spending significant time digging and searching and praying, here's what I concluded. Salvation is real. What they told me is true. I can experience it. That's true. I can be in the presence of God for all of eternity if I will embrace this lifestyle of salvation. It's true. A lot of what I knew and believed was true. But here's what I had believed that was not true. And that was that salvation was an instantaneous, one-time experience, and once you had it, you had it. That was not true. Because the Bible doesn't teach it that way. When I dug into the Word, I realized that's not the way it works. When you confess and repent, you step through a gateway. Yes, that is an event. Yes, that is an experience. It may have happened when you responded to an altar call. It may have happened in the quietness of your own home in your own closet. It may have happened when you were riding down the road. Every story in this room is probably different. It is an event. It is an experience. I stepped through. I repented. I confessed. But that's only the beginning. Paul says, I am being saved. Being is perpetual. I am always and at all times being saved. I will not be fully and completely and ultimately and completely changed and saved for good and totally until I am in his presence in the next life. Until then, I am being saved. Now, I'm not saying if, if you say to somebody, yes, I'm saved, that you're a liar and you're going to hell. But we need to have the right understanding of it. Sin is perpetual, so salvation has to be perpetual. If salvation was an instantaneous experience and you're done, then you could go on the rest of your life and whatever sin comes to you and whatever sin you fall into, you have no recourse, you have nowhere to go, you have no way to deal with it. If you do not have salvation, that's always showing up. I thank God for His salvation that comes to me fresh and new every morning and is with me all day. He's always saving me from myself. He's always, I ain't worried about the devil. I'm worried about me. Because the devil, his only goal is to get me to trust myself more than I trust God. And if I don't have perpetual salvation helping me to work all that out on a continual, all-day, everyday basis, I'm going to get in trouble. So we have him here. He's with us. Jesus went to the Father. He said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He's going to be constant. He's never going away. He's always there. We always have him. And so the language of the way has to be a prayer language that's happening all the time because it's through our prayers. We are to be prayerful, full of prayer all the time so that perpetual salvation is always happening and we're always able to deal with the perpetual sin that's going on in and around us. And the prayer can be when you get in your closet for 15 minutes and have prayer time 
And it can include when you say your prayer over your meals. And it can be when we're at church and we have prayer time. But let me tell you what it is way more than any of that. It is, it, it is a constant, perpetual state of mind, attitude, perspective, so that during my days, and how badly do we cheat ourselves by not doing this, by not taking advantage of the resource, that all day, every day, as we're in situations, as we're making decisions, as we're doing business, as we're doing work, as we're doing family, as we're doing life, that we have the opportunity to say, Holy Spirit, I need you here now. Just whisper, Holy Spirit, I need you to help me now. Holy Spirit, I want to make the right decision. Holy Spirit, I want your will to be accomplished, not mine. I don't want this to be a selfish thing. I want this to be a God thing. Holy Spirit, I need you to advocate for me so that I don't fall into sin right here. But if I do fall into sin, Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you through perpetual salvation. In the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who's with the Father, to help me work out my salvation right now. Work it out right now, right where I'm at, right with what's going on. Prayerful. It's like Doyle, who's not here today, but I keep talking about the simple thing he told his son to say when his son was about to die in the middle of his chemo treatments. Just say, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. You know what that is? That's prayer full. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. I intended to go over into Psalm 32 and look at one of David's prayers, but I don't want to keep you all too long. We'll take a look at it next week. But it's about, it's about Always being mindful that God is there even when really bad things are happening. You know, even when you're hearing stuff that's just really contrary to the nature of God and His kingdom. Even when you've been tempted and you've fallen into temptation, the hope is that He's there and we can go to Him. We can consult with Him. We can pray always without ceasing, and we should. So, we're just dirt people, but we're created by God. We, we have His breath. Every breath we take is one He gave us. We have salvation that we have the opportunity to live out day by day. Sin's all around us, but man, I'm encouraged to know, and I honestly don't know how people make it who don't know that he's right with me all the time. You know what? I, I know that I committed at least one sin last week. You know, not a lot of pastors, preachers would get up and tell you that. I know I did. Here's the good news. I didn't immediately start beating myself up, pouring condemnation on my head, feeling like I'm on my way to hell and got to get saved again. No, once I realized that the mind had just gone somewhere it didn't need to go and whatever, I just said, Father, by your Spirit, through your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that you'd show up one more time with powerful grace. Just cover me. Just wash me. Just renew me. We have that opportunity, y'all. 
So wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you've been thinking, whatever the mess has been, you know what? Give it to him. Talk to him about it. Consult with him. Be prayerful. Confess and repent and move on. You're good. And listen to his words every day and just do what he's telling you. Father, you, uh, you never cease to show us some really, really practical way that we can live this life, that we can be kingdom sons and daughters, that we can win. And so we acknowledge the presence of sin. It's not just out there in bad neighborhoods or out there in the world. It's right here. We acknowledge it. We also acknowledge that your spirit is with us, that we have somebody we can go to, we have somebody we can talk to. He is somebody who's already solved the sin problem for good. Our sin problem and the sin problem that the whole world has. Thank you that you've encouraged us and reminded us today of who you are, of your constancy. And we commit ourselves to prayerfulness in our walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen.